Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, where each week we talk about uh, practical issues related to ministry leadership. I'm in the middle of a series of podcasts based on my new book, Leading Major Change in Your Ministry. Uh, The book is out now, and I hope that uh, it helps many leaders to grapple with the significant issues of what it means to lead major change. Uh, As a part of these podcasts, I've been excerpting uh, some sections of the book and talking about them uh, just to introduce the ideas and uh, help you to have some understanding of what it means to lead major change. But of course, if you want the full full impact, full message, then I'd encourage you to pick up the book and not just read through it, but really work through it and perhaps even work through it with your leadership team in your church to build a basis of understanding of what it means to lead major change. Today, I want to talk about the issue of leading people through transition. In his book, The Art of Managing Transitions, William Bridges started with this sentence, it's not the changes that do you in, it's the transitions. When I read that book, with that uh, sentence many years ago, it seemed like it glowed on the page. I recognized the significance of it because up until that point in my life, when I had been leading major change, I had focused on the change and not so much on the transition, and yet I knew something was missing in my approach. And so uh, Bridges' book really helped me to understand that it wasn't just the changes that had to be managed, and it wasn't just changes that people had to be led to accommodate or to adopt. It was the transitions they were living through in the context of change that were so significant. And so uh, let's start by talking about what is the difference between change and transition. Well, change is the new set of circumstances introduced into an organization. Uh, change is the new budget. Change is the new building. Change is the new org chart. Change is the new staffing structure. Uh, change is the new program design. Change is moving Sunday school from, uh, from Bible study to fellowship, from Bible study to evangelism. Change is moving from uh, a Sunday school base to a home group base. Change is the new set of circumstances introduced into the organization. Transition is the emotional, psychological, and spiritual adjustment people go through to accommodate or adopt the change. Say again. Transition is the emotional, psychological, and spiritual adjustment people go through uh, to accommodate or adopt the change. Now, Many leaders make the common mistake, as I did earlier in my leadership career, of putting too much emphasis on change and not enough on transition. We put too much emphasis on the new set of circumstances in the organization and not enough emphasis on the emotional, psychological, and spiritual adjustment people are going through to accommodate or to adopt the change. Now, Christian leaders have spiritual motivation to manage transition well. Uh, We care about people. People are our business. And so we are motivated to do this process well. And secondly, managing transition um, is a disciple-making process. It's about helping people to learn and to grow. It's about helping people to take risks and demonstrate faith. It's about helping people to, uh, to, to do or to attempt what they've never done before. And so Christian leaders have a unique spiritual motivation. We We are committed to people, we care about people, and our responsibility is to help people grow through a disciple-making process. And so, managing transition is all about helping people grow and helping people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus. 
Now, in learning to manage transition, I've discovered that there are really about three key areas that need emphasis. The first is that transition is experienced as grief, and it's sometimes confused with rebellion by leaders. Second, uh, transition is managed best with strategy, not, not spontaneity or spontaneous plans. And third, uh, all reluctance that's demonstrated through transition is not necessarily opposition to the change, and when managed well, uh, becomes a process of adopting the change rather than opposing it. So let's talk about these three areas for a few minutes. First of all, uh, the first and most important aspect of managing transition is that people are moving through a grief process. Change, particularly major change, produces a sense of loss. People respond to change uh, with a sense of loss, and that sense of loss is like going through a grief process. Now, what are some examples of loss that people experience when facing major change in a ministry organization? Well, uh, first, there can be a loss of spiritual confidence. People have always done something a certain way, and they've been told that that's the best way. Now they're being told to do something a different way, and it can shake their confidence a bit and cause them to wonder, uh, what happened when we made this decision last time? Did we make a mistake? Did we miss God's will? Did we fail to find God's leadership? And so a, spirit, a sense of spirit, a loss of spiritual confidence can take place. But sometimes it's, it's more uh, practical or more specific. It can be a, a loss of vacation or discretionary spending due to the investment that's required to make a project successful. For example, a few years ago, our pastor proposed a major building project to our church. And I knew that uh, it was a good project. I knew it was worthwhile. I knew it was essential to the future mission of our church. I knew there was so much about it that was right and good. But when I heard him first propose the building project, my first response was, well, there goes my vacation. You see, I don't have a lot of extra money laying around that I can just give to a building program. I knew that if I was going to give to the building project, I had to take money away from something else. And the something else that I was going to take it away from was discretionary spending, things like vacation, things like saving for a car, uh, things like uh, putting aside money for uh, some future house improvement or something that we might want to buy for our, for our home. These are the kinds of losses that people experience. Maybe you're challenging your church to adopt an entirely new mission strategy where you have much more hands-on involvement. Well, people are hearing that and they're thinking, if I make a commitment to being a part of this, I'm going to have to give up my vacations. No longer will I be able to take time away from work to travel for leisure. Now I'm going to have to take time away from work to travel for focused mission. And while people may be willing to do that, we have to recognize that there's some loss built into that. People are going to have to tell the grandparents, for example, we're not bringing our children to visit you. We're taking our children on a mission trip. And that creates family stress, sometimes even family tension uh, and conflict. And so these are the kinds of losses people experience when they're faced with major change. Another one is uh, people sometimes face loss of position or loss of expertise. There was a, a woman that uh, was a, an expert in, in child development and in preschool ministry, and particularly in using one particular curriculum. Um, her church announced that they were going to reconsider the curriculum they were using and perhaps change. And this uh, woman was really devastated. She said, well, I understand the need to think about this, but if we change... I won't know anything about the new curriculum. I won't know anything about how to train the people to use it. I, I lose my expertise and really my, my place of influence. And so this major change that was being considered produced a sense of loss in her life, of lost position, lost expertise. 
Another kind of loss people experience is a, is a loss of spiritual heritage. A few years ago, when I first proposed a church relocation, the most strenuous opposition came from a man who said to me, I can't believe you're taking my church away from me. Now, when he said that, I was somewhat startled because I wasn't trying to take his church away from him. I was trying to build a facility large enough that more people could come to worship and more families could experience what his family had experienced. But as we had a later conversation about his comment, I learned that all of his happy spiritual memories of his family were tied up in the old facility. His children had been married there. His grandchildren had been baptized there. And in fact, all of those people had since abandoned their faith and were living a a life without commitment to the Lord or to the church. And so um, his whole spiritual heritage was wrapped up in his memories of what happened in that older facility. And when we talked about leaving it, we were talking about taking away from him everything about his spiritual memories and spiritual heritage. It takes good discernment for leaders to understand what people are going through when we propose major change. You know, when we propose major change, we see it as a time of opportunity, but our followers perceive it as a time of loss. Now, when people go through loss, particularly profound loss, they go through what are called stages of grief. Now, many leaders have studied these in the context of what happens when a person dies or is told they have a terminal illness, but they haven't really thought about applying those same principles to other kinds of loss. So the stages of grief uh, are summarized in different ways. Some people say there's five, some six, some eight, some even more, but for our purposes, I think a six-fold model will work well. When a person experiences significant loss, they go through these following stages, shock, anger, denial, bargaining, exploration, and adjustment. Shock, anger, denial, bargaining, exploration, and adjustment. Now, when people go through these phases or stages, it's important to remember that they're not going through them as steps. People don't go through step one, step two, step three, step four. It's more like a pinball careening between these six different uh, expressions of grief. Uh, There's shock, anger, denial, and then maybe back to anger, then up to bargaining, and then exploration, and then back to denial, back to shock, back to anger, then up to adjustment, and then back to bargaining, and up to adjustment, back to bargaining. People bounce around among these stages and gradually work to a place where they're into what's called adjustment to their new normal or to the change that's been implemented. But it sometimes takes a while, and it's sometimes confusing as people go through all these different uh, stages. Remember, people process loss at different rates and in different ways. And this is also difficult in a church setting because people may also be uh, processing other losses simultaneously. For example, uh, while they may be losing something significant in their church ministry setting or in their church context, they may be also losing a job at work. They may be losing a child who's going away to college. They may be losing a loved one who's who's, who's near death or has died. And so they have these simultaneous losses going on with what they're experiencing in their ministry setting, and that can compound what they're experiencing and heighten it and make it even more intense and more difficult to deal with as a ministry leader. So how do you respond to people in transition when they're going through grief experiencing significant loss? Well, two ways. First, uh, manage organizational grief by providing pastoral care to people going through transition. Um, You have to initiate pastoral care for people who are experiencing change and going through transition. And by initiate, I mean, as a leader, you either go to them yourself or 
you create some structures by which people can have their losses uh, discussed and, and handled or managed uh, by some other person. I know that in larger organizations, it's impossible for the key leader to get to everyone or the, or the senior leader to get to everyone, but it is his or her responsibility to make sure that everyone receives some kind of pastoral care that helps them process the loss they're experiencing as they're going through grief. Now, how do you do this? Well, uh, the most basic is to initiate pastoral care by talking with people, by just saying, hey, I know we're going through a major change here. How's it hitting you? Uh, how are you feeling about it? Uh, are you feeling any sense of loss or any kind of uh, sense of grief about this? And while you may not put it in those exact words, what you're listening for are some of the expressions of grief that I've described in this podcast, uh, shock, anger, denial, bargaining adjustment, uh, or bargaining exploration adjustment, and helping people to work through those things as they dialogue with you. Another way you can initiate pastoral care is by sharing information with people about their grief situation. When we went through the major relocation of the seminary, for example, in my initial presentation to the seminary about the relocation, I actually talked about how we would experience it as a significant loss. And I identified some of the losses people would go through. A loss of sense of place, a loss of spiritual heritage, uh, a loss of, of uh, churches and spouses' employment and children in schools. I, I talked about all the different kinds of losses that we might go through. And then I talked about very openly the grief that we would experience, the stages of grief that we would live through, and how we would work together to make it through the difficulty. Now, sharing information like that is an act of pastoral care. It acknowledges what people are going through. Uh, it doesn't try to hide it or sweep it under a rug or ignore it. It simply says, this is what's happening, and I want to be upfront about it and give you some, uh, some resources to process through what you're experiencing. And then another way to do this is to create dialogue opportunities within the community for people to talk about their loss. Now, this is, again, one of the things that we did at the seminary, which really uh, startled some people. In fact, it was so significant that several employees came to me later and said, I have never in a leadership context had anyone give me permission to talk about what I was going through like you did and even facilitate that into some, in some small group dialogue. Now, this is a Listen carefully to this distinction, however. When you create opportunities for people to talk about the transition they're going through, um, you are talking about, you're giving them the opportunity to talk about the transition they're going through, not the change that's being implemented. Now, that's a very careful distinction. I never called people together as a seminary community and said, let's discuss and debate whether the seminary is going to relocate. That was a final decision that had already been made by our board. What we did call people together to discuss was, would you like to talk about how you're processing the decision that's been made? Would you like to talk about the sense of losses, that you, the sense of loss that you feel? Would you like to dialogue about the grief that you're experiencing? Would you like to talk about options, about how we can manage through this situation and how we can hold together, work together, and find our way forward? We did all of those things, but we never had a meeting where we had a dialogue or a discussion about whether the change should be implemented. Now, this is the difference between dialogue and murmuring, between uh, discussion and gossip are undermining the change that's being implemented. So when you're helping people process grief, 
that's a result of loss caused by major change, a first step is pastoral care. We initiate pastoral care by extending ourselves as leaders to people and helping them understand what's happening to them. We do this by talking with people, by sharing information with them about what they're going through, and by creating dialogue opportunities for them to work through the issues related to their loss and to process the grief they're experiencing. And remember, we contrast this with not allowing murmuring or, or, uh, or gossip our discussion that undermines the change, that's not what's on the table. But what is on the table, what's very much a part of our strategy, is creating dialogue opportunities for people uh, to process the transition. All right, a second uh, strategy for helping people to manage organizational transition is having a clear-cut strategy for managing the transition that leads them to have greater confidence that change can be implemented well. Sometimes leaders make the mistake of saying, well, you're just going to have to trust me. Anytime a leader has degenerated to the point of just telling people they have to be trusted, uh, something is really wrong in the relationship. People know that they have to trust their leaders if they're going to go forward. And leaders, rather than demanding that trust or even asking for that trust, behave in a trustworthy manner and by doing so engender or gain the trust of their followers. Now, I believe that change is best managed with a set of what I call strategic documents that describe the change and then outline the process by which it will be implemented and in the context of that also lay out the processes by which the organization will help the individuals involved to manage the transition, which is, of course, remember, the emotional, psychological, and spiritual adjustment that people are going through. Now, don't be alarmed or uh, by the need for strategic documents. Detailed documents like 20, 50, 100-page documents are not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a two-page document that summarizes the change, the steps that are going to be needed to implement that change, and the transition strategies that will be put in place to help people process the change. Um, when I first started out trying to lead major change, I made this huge mistake in my first attempt. I created this mega manual which had page after page after page of detailed instructions about how the change was going to be implemented. And quite honestly, that manual became so controversial <clears throat> that it resulted in the changes being completely and entirely rejected by the church. I realized then that my micromanagement of the process was putting people in a straitjacket they just simply could not bear. And what I needed instead was a clear articulation of the primary changes that need to be made or the main change that needed to be made, and then a workable plan that was laid out to help them see how that was going to happen, along with some, some uh, acknowledgement of some transition strategies uh, that were included. This entire document needed to be one or two pages. Uh, when we, when we uh, did this at the seminary, uh, we had reams and reams of paper devoted to the planning process, but when we went public, we made sure that we went public with very specific, short documents that people could read, digest quickly, and understand without a great deal of explanation. Now, as we moved farther into the process, at different times, we had to give more detail and we had to lay out more detail, and that's perfectly normal. But at the, at the point where you're laying out the change and laying out the transition strategy, a one- to two-page document uh, is what's needed. Now, you may say, well, man, I just feel like we need to write something longer. Well, you may need something longer to use privately, but again, I'm talking about what you communicate publicly. If you can't communicate a major change in one to two pages, uh, you probably haven't thought it through well enough to be ready to implement it anyway. 
You know, it's always easier to write longer than it is to write shorter. It's always easier to go on and on and on rather than to be very specific, very clear, very succinct. And so I challenge you to learn to write shorter and to write something that you can give to people, that you can interpret to people, that can be a, a simple a two-page document, a simple one-page on a website, a simple uh, summation, sum, sum, summation in a brochure, something that people can grasp pretty quickly as t in terms of what the major change is you're implementing, how you're going to about, go about implementing it, and then, very important, some of the strategies you're going to use to help people manage the transition as they go through it. Now, a lot of leaders don't like putting things in writing like this because of two reasons. One, it creates permanency. Once you write something down and give it to people and publicize it, uh, you're committed to that, that chart. That you're, you're committed to, that, uh, to, to, to the course you've charted. You're committed to going that direction. Some leaders also don't like to put things in writing like this because it creates accountability. When you've said you're going to do something and you've even laid out maybe a timetable or a, or a process, it gets really difficult to, to then say, whoops, uh, and we're going to go another direction. Now, again, uh, you, you're not laying out the detail plan because there's always going to be adjustments in the details, but you're, you are laying out the overarching strategy of where you're going, how you're going to get there, and how the transition will be managed as people accommodate or accept the change. So uh, strategy is very important, and that strategy is best summarized in a short document, and that document needs to be uh, very clear, not too detailed, not too long, and then don't be afraid of putting it out there because when you do, you create permanency and accountability. And once you establish those things, it gives you a track as a leader that you have to stay on. And it also causes you, uh, causes people to have greater confidence in you and your leadership because they know that what you set out to do, you're going to lead them to accomplish. Okay, well, a third major issue is, is discerning the difference between reluctance to adopt a change, which is really what the transition process reveals, and opposition to the change. Now, again, when I was a younger leader, I made a, a significant mistake, and that is I thought that all reluctance to adopt change was opposition to change. Now, I did this because of insecurity, and insecurity in leaders creates false dichotomies and wrong assumptions. When you're insecure in yourself or insecure in your relationship with God or insecure in your relationship with your followers or insecure about the plan that you're laying out, insecurity breeds false dichotomy. It causes you to say, well, people are either for me or against me. They're either with me or they're not. Um, and it also uh, leads to these wrong assumptions about, uh, about people and these wild speculations about what's motivating people. Uh, I learned uh, over the years that most of the time uh, people are reluctant because they're processing the transition aspects of major change, not because they're always completely opposed to what's being proposed. Now, when you announce or propose a major change, you need to allow followers time uh, to assimilate what they're hearing and to work through some initial phases of the transition process, which, of course, involves some of what I've already said related to loss and grief. So allow followers time to make a final decision about what you're proposing, to develop their own communication avenues, to sort out the options and how they may see them, and to actually accept the major change. Now, followers begin their process of accepting major change when they hear the change communicated for the first time. 
Now, this is hard for leaders to remember because leaders may have been working on a major change for six months to two years. We've been building up to it, working on it, praying over it, strategizing about it, writing, writing the, the ideas, considering the options. And so when we finally announce it, we are at the end of the adoption process for us. But we have to understand our, le- our followers are just now at the beginning of the acceptance process. So how long does it take for followers to agree with and support a major change recommendation or a decision? Well, I don't know of a fixed formula on this, but from my observation, it takes anywhere from a few days to a few weeks. But I will say this, it usually takes far less time than the leaders have invested in coming to the conclusion. So let's say that as a leader, you spend two years um, investing yourself in a major change decision. You finally reach the point where you're sure of what you're supposed to do, and you announce that major change to your, to your followers. You've spent two years coming to the conclusion. How long will it take them to come to the conclusion that you're right, that this major change is needed in your organization? Well, I think a couple of months would be a fair time frame. You say, well, why doesn't it take them two years if it took you two years? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, over the two-year time frame that you've been working on the problem, uh, you have eliminated a lot of other options, solved a lot of issues, and gathered a lot of information that you can include in your presentation to your followers, which fast-forwards them uh, in, the, in the acceptance process. But the other reason is, uh, and leaders often forget this, but the other reason is your followers want to follow you. Uh, they want you to be right. They, they want to adopt your initiatives. They are your followers. They, they have placed themselves under your direction because they want to be there. Uh, Remember, everyone's a volunteer. You say, well, not my employees. I pay them. No, they're volunteers. They can quit tomorrow. Everyone's a volunteer. They voluntarily want to be a part of your organization, your church, your ministry. And because of that, they want to adopt the changes that you propose. Now, it may take them a few weeks to come to the conclusion that you're right on something, but they do want to get there, most of them, as quickly as possible. So how long does it take? Well, a few weeks to a few months, or a few days to a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. Now, that leads us to a really thorny question, though. What do you do about people who don't accept the change that you're proposing? Well, let's put them in two broad categories this morning, or today on the podcast. First of all, there are what I call the non-supporters. These are people that really don't adopt the change, but they're really not opposed to it either. They're not going to give any time or money to help it become a reality, but they're really not going to oppose it either. These are just people who are going to go along. My advice to uh, to you as a leader about these people is ignore them. Just take them along with you. Uh, You're not going to uh, really convert them into passionate advocates, but neither are they going to oppose what you're trying to do, so just take them along with you. Non-supporters can be ignored and taken along for the ride. But what about resolute opponents? Suppose you roll out a major change, you work through the transition process, you do everything you know to help people assimilate what needs to happen, and they finally, after a couple of months, come to the conclusion, uh, I will not support this change. Well, this is hard to say, and it's even harder for you to hear, and it'll be even harder for you to implement. But people who are resolute opponents to major change cannot be allowed to remain in the organization. Now, why? Well, because it goes back to the premise of why we're making a major change in the first place. Major change must only be made when it's in support of the core mission of the organization, in support of God's mission. And when a person says, I'm opposed to this major change. What they're really saying is, I'm opposed to the mission of the organization as it supports God's mission. Now, they may not be bad people. They may not be 
you know, they, they may have good reasons. Uh, there, there may be a lot of things about this that, that cause you to want to hold on to these people, but in reality, they have to move on. They have to go somewhere else where they can find a, a church or an organization where they can support the way that church organization is living out their mission in support of God's mission. Now, this is a really hard thing to do. I was recently talking to a church planter, and he, of course, is trying to reach everyone he can because he's trying to reach critical mass and get a congregation established. And he had to ask a family to leave the church because they were constantly already, even in the first few months, working in counterproductive ways to the, to the, to the mission that he had laid out and the way the church was going to be structured and the way the church was going to go about its program. Uh, that was a hard conversation for him to have because he, these weren't bad people, but they were people who were misaligned with the mission of what he was trying to accomplish. So sometimes when people are resolute opponents to a major change, uh, resolute opponents to a significant strategy that's in support of the mission of the church or organization, those people simply have to be asked and encouraged to move on. Well, leading people through transition. Transition is not the same as change. Change is the new set of circumstances. Transition is the spiritual, emotional, and psychological response people make to that change. Don't spend so much time on the change that you neglect these important transition issues. Helping people to work through the sense of loss they're experiencing, to have greater confidence in the strategy being rolled out for them, and to process through their perhaps initial concerns that may even look like opposition and come to full resolution and adoption. That's the process we have to spend time on if we're going to really lead people effectively to implement major change. Hey, that's our goal, getting people through the process in a healthy way so that the organization thrives as it fulfills its mission in the context of God's mission. You can do it. It's challenging. Lead on.